0: so if you don't have a bible i need you to raise your hand and we'll bring one to you right in your seat you can borrow one i'll give you the page numbers if you're not so sure about reading the word you might want to grab one of those it's a red bible you got one to borrow we got a couple guys handing them out keep your hand up until you get one they come through a little later on with popcorn and peanuts and and uh we don't charge for the bibles however so anyway If you will, the rest of you will take out the handout sheet in your bulletin. You'll notice that today is part two in the series of Acts. We're teaching the book of Acts all the way through. And today's lesson is entitled, The Passion of Pentecost. J. Vernon McGee said this, and he said, what a day Pentecost was. It was the day the Holy Spirit came to call out a body of believers to form the church. The day before Pentecost, there was no church. The day after Pentecost, there was a church what a day it was. I want to kind of call you to the big picture as we get rolling this morning, and that is, why did Luke write the book of Acts? He wrote a two-volume set. It was the gospel of Luke and then Acts, all right? You can't understand one without the other. Why did he write the book of Acts? Well, this is how I see it. The central point of Acts is to show the spread of Christianity. Why? Due to the empowerment and design of the Holy Spirit and how the fulfillment came about of Christ's words that His church would be witnesses to the whole world. That's why it was written. So as you're reading it, you're going, what's this all about? Why all the list of miracles? Why all the different places? It's showing you how God's promises are true. God has a promise in your life, it's going to come true. There were five times in history, and there will be a sixth, there's five times in history of a huge outpouring of miracles. Now, I don't mean just a few miracles here and there. I'm talking about the big deal. The first one of those was creation. And that was when God did it himself. That was to create. The second one was the Exodus when Moses and all the plagues came down upon Egypt. That was to liberate. The third one happened in first and second Kings with Elijah and Elisha, and that was to declare that God was still sovereign, that nation, that the nation of Israel needed to return to him. The fourth one was Jesus Christ's ministry, what we read about in the Gospels, and that was to validate the ministry of Christ and let them know the Messiah was here and then there's the book of Acts number five, to inaugurate the early church. Now then, I told you that there are five promises that were in just the first chapter alone. The five promises that were given to the church by Jesus Christ. And those are about to come true. The five promises that were in chapter one is, number one, the promise that the Holy Spirit would show up. The second one was that there was a promise that power would come upon them for the job they were about to do. The third one was that they would receive authority as the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. The fourth one is that God's kingdom would be restored someday here on earth. And number five, that Jesus Christ would come again. The first three miracles are about to launch right now with the church. And we're about to see the impact that these promises make and the church begins in T minus 10, 9, 8. Let's read Acts chapter 2 verse 1. That is page 771 in the Red Bibles. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 through 13 is what we're covering this morning about the day of Pentecost. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. You can follow along. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does it mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they've had too much wine. They're just drunk. Would you pray with me for the word? Heavenly Father, would we be the people that would listen? Would we be the people that say, what does this mean? Father, may we not be hard-hearted and be the ones that would scoff and say, this isn't for me. Or Lance, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or Father, you don't reveal things to me. Things like that. Father, you're revealing things to us all the time. And you got a message for us this morning, something that needs to impact our lives and transform us. And Father,
1: we ask that our hearts would be soft. And that we would be receptive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the day of
0: Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, there's something that really bugs me that the Bible seems to do, because I don't understand very well. And that is when they use a term, before I think it's time. Right? Here's what I mean. I remember the first time I read that Jesus got baptized. And I thought, why in the world was that happening? I thought we got baptized because of Jesus. How do you baptize, and why did Jesus get baptized as if it was already happening beforehand? And I didn't understand that it was already a process that was happening in the Jewish religion. And so I thought, wait a second. You can't get baptized before Jesus. Well, that happened again. It says when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And they were there for Pentecost. And I think, wait a second. I thought Pentecost was all about this day. I didn't think that it was a real deal, that it was a real... Festival, that it was really a thing that you could go to before the church was launched. I thought that was the launch of the church. And the whole reason we have the title Pentecost was all about this day. Well, no. No. Pentecost means 50th. Pentecost is a festival in Judaism, which is the 50th day after Passover. And what it is, is it's a festival that is also called in the Old Testament, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Also, the Feast of first fruits. If you ever see that in the Old Testament, that's what they were celebrating. It says that they all came together in one place. All right? Now, what's interesting is that as they were all together in one place, you will notice that God was about to move. And we look and we say, well, I, why were they in one place? Well, it was the day of Pentecost. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, because there's current teaching that goes on in the church that the only reason the Holy Spirit showed up is because they prayed real hard. The Holy Spirit did not come because they were pleading Him. The Holy Spirit did not come because, oh wait, finally that last guy John showed up in the room, now I can come. The Holy Spirit did not come for any of those reasons, but for the fact that God said, the Holy Spirit's coming down, and He's coming down according to prophecy, on the day of
1: pentecost
0: see that was the reason why the holy spirit came and the reason why that's a comfort to me is that if i have a tendency to say well i think i need to be empowered for this particular thing and i'm sitting there praying oh lord give me more power and he doesn't show up it's not because i'm not praying hard enough does that make sense i gotta alleviate some of that
1: guilt that y'all carry around
0: you're not praying hard enough and so god's not working hard enough i don't think that's the case since they were all together in one room who Well, in chapter 1, it mentions 120 of them, right?
1: Men, women, a bunch of different things.
0: They were all together in one place. It says, suddenly, a sound like a violent rushing wind filled the place. Suddenly, this caught them off guard. They weren't prepared for it. They weren't ready for it. They weren't expecting it. They didn't even know it was going to happen. Suddenly, bam, just shows up. It wasn't like they were going, all right, now we're warming it up. Now the Spirit's getting rolling. All right, now He's about to do something big. No. Holy Spirit said, hello, boom, opened the door, walked right in. Who knows, they were playing cheesy. We have no idea what they were doing, all right? Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It was not a violent wind, okay? It was a sound like a blowing wind, because here's what we picture. All the people are sitting there, and they were praying, and they have their hands raised, and all of a sudden, the Their hair began to swirl. You know, and everybody was wild. And it was kind of a big fan experience. No, that was not it. It was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And the sound filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then all of a sudden the visuals kicked in. God's multimedia. Praise the Lord. He seemed, it says, what they saw seemed to be tongues of fire that came and separated on each of their heads. Now, if you are... Odd like me. You certainly don't want to picture big old tongues, you know, and they're all on fire, and oh, I have a burning tongue of fire on my head, you know, and oh, my hairspray, it's going to light up, and you know. Something that seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them, and it says, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What's interesting is the term sitting. It says where all of them were sitting. Why is that important? Well, there's only two postures of prayer that is given in Scripture, and that's not one of them. The postures of prayer are standing and kneeling. They were sitting. Probability is they weren't
1: praying. The Holy Spirit surprised them. They had no idea. But when He comes, He comes. I want to talk to you about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There are a couple
0: terms that are slung around in the church today, and that is filled with the Spirit and baptized with the Spirit. Anybody ever heard the term baptized with the Spirit? All right. want to talk a little bit about what this is. Let me give you an explanation. Baptism of the Spirit happens when you get saved. It's a one-time shot deal. It's inclusion into the body of Christ. It is like the term justification or adoption. How many times are you justified before God? One time. How many times are you adopted into the family of God? One time. How many times are you baptized in the Spirit? One time. The word baptism means immersion into. Talking about being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says that we must be immersed in Christ, baptized in Christ. You have that happen once. You understand? But there's a different term. That's being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is a continual process and can be refreshed. Why would I say that? Because Peter, who's filled here with the Spirit, later is filled again in Acts 4.31. Uh-oh. Stephen is mentioned that he's fully filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 6.5. Then he gets filled again in Acts 7.55. Paul got filled twice, too. If it's a one-time event, why do they keep getting double doses? We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't get drunk on wine. Instead, what?
1: Be filled with the Spirit.
0: Now, if he commands you to do that, doesn't that seem to suggest that you have something to do with it? Interesting. Does he command you, in a sense, to be justified? You better hurry up and get justified. No, that's God's business, not your business. God justifies you. Being filled with the Spirit is a process of continually being filled with the Spirit, which requires what? More room. You've got to empty yourself. There's where the problem comes in. It. It's a matter of dying to selfishness. It's about practicing the presence of Christ. It's about being saturated with the Word of God. The more we walk by the Spirit, the more He fills us. You see, being baptized by the Spirit gives you power by the very nature of having the indwelling Christ. Being filled with the Spirit unleashes that power for a particular job. we see the difference? Baptized, filled. Now, let's talk about speaking in tongues. I had a few light subjects I wanted to talk to you about this morning. Speaking in tongues happens to be one of them. In this passage, in this context, the term for tongues is specifically in Greek, ausia, which means a known language in this context. It says specifically that it was a known language, and we see from the context that everybody else understood them in their own known language, speaking of God. So we've got to see five things in discussing what speaking in tongues is all about. Number one, speaking in tongues did not accompany being baptized by the Spirit, but filled with the Spirit. Did you see that? It's a difference. Number two, although many times the evidence of the Spirit filling someone is tongues there are six references in scripture of people being filled with the spirit without tongues what do you do with that
1: well
0: number three being filled with the spirit is demonstrated
1: according to scripture by the fruit of the spirit mentioned in galatians 5 love joy peace patience goodness kindness do you remember not one of those is listed speaking in tongues that is evidence of being
0: filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit in this particular gift did not come from a seminar. It was not taught. It just showed up. You understand? Number five, there's always a point to tongues, to spoken tongues. Either it's a sign to unbelievers, it's talking about the equality of believers, or to validate the early church. Now then, what, why do we have a problem Well, there's an argument about speaking in tongues, and there's two sides. Here's the two sides. On one side, the argument is that sometimes outward tongues are literal languages, and sometimes they're just words from God for the church to be translated for edification. Now, the support from that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 specifically, where it says, you need someone to interpret for you because i got a word for the church. All right? That's where the support comes from. That's one side. The other side of the argument says... That in addition to outward tongues for the church, there is such a thing as a prayer language. This usually happens personally in times of prayer when a person is totally into God. And instead of focusing on all the right words to say, wants to communicate with the Lord and begins to speak in tongues quietly to him. The support for this is stated to come from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel and 1 Corinthians fourteen two, which says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, what language does God speak? I don't know. <laughs> Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. The Bible doesn't seem to say there's a
1: problem with that. Hmm.
0: Also cited, 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-eight: If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Why would God give him a word if there was no interpreter, if there was no benefit to it, do you think that God suddenly went, Oh,
1: <laughs> I didn't realize there was no interpreter today. Goodness gracious. I thought I had him in there. Now then, why don't we speak in tongues in Roosevelt Hope?
0: Let me give you the answer. Number one, there's some debate whether or not tongues are legitimate and needed for today. Okay, now I'll address that in the section on miracles. So, but the main reason is that number two the leadership of this church and i speak of the elder board and myself the leadership of this church thinks that scripture suggests that there are more beneficial things for the body than pursuing tongues first corinthians fourteen twelve. paul said since you are eager to have spiritual gifts try to excel in the gifts that build up the church that make sense number two first corinthians fourteen eighteen. i thank god paul said that i speak in tongues more than all of you but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000
1: words in a tongue. That's fine. But i got a problem as a leader. i got a struggle. And here's my struggle. 1 Corinthians 14.39 Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, which means preach, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Uh-oh. What do I do? You see, I don't want to shut the door on any blessing that God has for us. But at the same time, I want to be a discerning shepherd. I want to do things properly. You know, we have so much fear over the unknown. We have so much concern.
0: But you know what? I don't know where to stand on that. Am I going to have to figure that out? Sure, I am.
1: But I just wanted to tell you why we don't pursue it in the church service. Because we feel that Scripture suggests that there are other things that we need to pursue. Make Make sense?
0: You guys ready to hear my personal stance on tongues? I never give my personal stance, right? The only reason I'm giving a personal stance is because I get asked about this a lot, okay? In the past, I've got asked about it more. Now people just kind of let it go. I'm gonna give you my personal stance and that means everyone must understand I am not God, okay? What I say is fallible. You can disagree with me. You can take it with a grain of salt. It is one man's opinion of what he saw in Scripture. Are we all clear on that? I'm not pretending to be anything more than that. One man's opinion, and here's how I read it. I believe that the majority of tongues in the Bible were real languages that people spoke. I think that it can and does happen today, but only if there's a need and a reason for it. I would expect it on the mission field or in a diverse cultural setting, not in the church.
1: That's my position.
0: Secondly, I leave the door open for the possibility of a prayer language due to the evidence in the lives of people I respect and trust and due to biblical support. I do not pray in tongues myself. We all got that? Number three, I do not agree whatsoever in the concept that if you don't speak in tongues that you're not a believer or that you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit or that in some way you are less than and missing out on God's desire for you. I think that that's heretical teaching and I will stand up against it any day of the week
1: there's my personal stance you can agree you can disagree let's talk about miracles
0: would you turn to acts chapter 9 verse 32 you're going to go to the right in your bibles that's page 778 in the red bible acts chapter 9 verse 32 has anybody ever had tongues summed up that fast (laughs) probably not i wish somebody would have done that for me acts 9 32 43. By the way, if you differ from that opinion, we agree to a disagree agreeably, all right? It is not a division issue. I would still love to hang out with you. And by the way, Jesus loves you too, okay? So please, don't worry about it, all right? Acts nine 32. Let's read about miracles. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. Now there was a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, who had been bedridden for eight years. Ennius, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Ennius got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. All of them. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, when translated is Dorcas. Okay? Stick with Tabitha. Anyone in this room? who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him. They said, Please, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. Now all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called
1: the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. What in the world do you do with that? Are miracles for today?
0: Do they happen? Do people have the gift of the miraculous? Can someone have a
1: healing ministry?
0: To sort it all out, it takes a couple key paths. Here's my question for you. Do miracles happen today? All right, I believe that straight across the board, in evangelical Christian settings, that answer will be yes all the way around. I don't think anyone's going to deny that. God still works today. When God intervenes in human affairs, that's a miracle. Miracles happen today. Do miracles happen through specific people is a different question. Can someone have that gift of healing today? Can they have the gift of miraculous? And can they have a whole ministry based around it? Well, that's a heated debate. There are two sides of the issue. Here's number one. Miracles continue through today and can happen through people with that gift. The other side says that miracles ceased with the apostles. When the apostles stop, they stop. Got that? Two sides. Now, the people who argue that miracles ended with the apostles cite these five reasons. 2 Corinthians 12.12, the things that mark an apostle are signs, wonders, miracles. All right. Well, if they mark an apostle, maybe they only go with apostles. Number two, most all the miracles mentioned in Scripture are done by the apostles, not the general church. The only healing is done through prayer at the hands of elders, anointing with oil, stuff like that. And they don't count those as the same thing. Those people didn't have a specific gift for that. They were able to pray, and the Lord healed someone. Totally different. Number three, no believers, and I didn't know this, <laughs> no believers are healed in the Bible. Three of them are raised from the dead, but no believers are ever healed in the Bible. It's all non-believers. So the point was, is in order to bring the gospel of Christ to them as a witness. Makes sense. Number four, miracles were done to validate the early church as legitimate to the Jews, and that's no longer needed today. Number five, it doesn't help that there are many bogus healings, claims of partial healings. By the way, the Bibles are total, complete healings every time. And that some are demonic in origin. That doesn't help. All right? Now, those who argue on the other side that the gifts are still for today said that, number one, there's nowhere in Scripture that said they stopped. So why should you assume they stop? Number two, the healings of sickness in James 5.14 by the elders with oil are healing and part of the ministry. Number three, 1 Corinthians 12 mentions the gifts of healing in relation to the whole body and gives you instructions on how to do it. If it's just for the apostles, why did Paul write it down? Number four, there are still reports today of miraculous that have not found to be forgeries or satanic in origin. Still happening. Number five, the power was given to the church as a whole, then the church has continued throughout the history, and it's still going on today.
1: Why don't we have miracles in our services? At Bottom line, because we haven't had any.
0: God hasn't moved here like that. We lack a lot of faith in trying. We're really, really skeptical. And you know what? We're afraid of being embarrassed when you pray for it and it doesn't work. What do you do? You feel stupid. We have a whole issue about this whole business. We don't want to be creepy. We don't want to be odd. We don't want to be strange. And we certainly don't want to go out on a limb and find out that it wasn't true. So we're pretty reticent to do that. We hold back a lot. But the bottom line
1: is... God just hasn't decided to move like that. But you know what? Miracles have happened through prayer in our church.
0: We have prayed as a body for miracles to happen, and they have happened. There have been healings that have happened. There are things that people have submitted prayer requests, and we've prayed for them, and they have happened. The power of God is alive and active today, and it's happening through the prayers of the people right here. That's wonderful. Maybe God didn't see it necessary for one person to have that gift to run around and monopolize that ministry. I don't know. You want to know my personal stance on miracles? My personal stance on miracles and healings are this. Miracles are always used to confirm the gospel is true. Miracles are used to authenticate the messengers. They're used to draw men unto himself and they're always for a reason. They're not for flash. They're not for anything else. They're not just merely to draw a crowd. They're not... You see the point? I think they are for today, but much that is claimed to be miraculous is not. I think that God will break through with miraculous anytime he darn well pleases, and he may do that in our midst, and he may not. That's his business. I will continue to pray for it at times, and if there's a reason for it and it's in his will, it'll happen. There you go. That's my stance on miracles. Let's close out the passage by backing up to chapter 2, verse 5. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Skip back a couple pages. And I want to talk about why all the hoopla. Why were all those guys there? Why were all these God-fearing Jews from all these different nations coming together and they were about to be transformed? Why? Well, because it was required that all Hebrew males would celebrate this. It was one of the three biggest festivals of the year, and they came as pilgrims. They came from all over to focus on one area in Jerusalem. They were all called to be there. So there was a huge focus on God during that time. It says, from every nation under heaven. Is that true? All the places that are mentioned, is that every nation under heaven? Was that the whole earth at the time? No. So was the Bible wrong?
1: No. You guys, it was an expression that was commonly used.
0: Every nation under heaven meant a lot of places. It was just like a cliche, just a standard idiomatic expression but a bunch of people were there together and a really weird sound drew a crowd. Why did he draw the crowd? Why the weird sound? Because Peter was about to preach. Because God was about to move. Why did he have the tongues of fire and all the oddities? Because Peter was about to preach and God was about to move. It was authenticating the message. It was the same reason why all miracles are done. Boom, it validated the church. So what did these guys say? These backwoods Galileans, non-educated guys, all of a sudden are talking in all these different languages, all these learned men from university cities all around, come walking up and they're saying, Wait a second, this guy's praising God in my language. I know you don't know my language. I came from a long distance and you don't know what you're saying. What were they saying? If the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and give you some amazing thing to say, if something crazy like that is going to happen, if the Holy Spirit takes control of you and says something, what's He going to say? Is He going to start throwing out random phrases? Is He going to give you stock quotes? Is it What's He going to do? Well, I'll tell you what the Bible suggests. That every time the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, it has something to do with God it's going to draw men unto himself, it's going to speak of the praises of God, is it's going to astonish people because it will talk about the mighty deeds of God. It will begin to well up with worship. It will begin to express to everyone what God is about. It will show how wonderful God is.
1: That's why it showed up. That's why the power was there. You know, if you read Psalms where David says, Oh God, You're so mighty and mighty. God, you were so wonderful and kind. That's the kind of stuff they were saying. They didn't have anything fancier to say. They just told how wonderful God was. We learn next week that 3,000 of those that heard came to acknowledge Christ that day. And they said, 3,000 people in one shot. This is a mighty move of God. Pretty powerful launch of the early church, don't you think? Pentecost was truly amazing. Can you even imagine what it's like? I bet you can.
0: Three years ago, I heard a pastor speak by the name of Leith Anderson. He was the interim president of Denver Seminary, and he's the pastor of Wooddale Church in Minnesota. He spoke to us and was talking about leadership and things like that, and he said, you know... Every time I read the book of Acts, I always wonder one thing. Why did those guys keep going? I mean, man, what a brutal job. You're spreading the gospel throughout the ends of the earth. You're getting beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. Everybody hates you. All things are letting loose wild beasts on you. Everybody's getting martyred around you. Why in the world would you continue on and not give up? He said, no matter what I think about, it always comes back to one day. That though it wasn't happening on the grand scale, they look back to a day when God moved in their midst. So huge, 3,000 people came to the knowledge of Christ in one day. And that knowledge kept them going through all that terrible persecution and continued to launch the church. Because of that one day, when God moved in a mighty way, 3,000 people from many different nations all came together and were saved.
1: And then he shared some startling statistics.
0: Three years ago, understand, he was sharing these. These are even higher today. Here you go. The center of Christianity in the last decade has moved from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, from the eastern hemisphere, excuse me, to the eastern hemisphere, from the western hemisphere. There are 32,000 more Christians in China today than there were yesterday in Af- Africa, south of the Sahara, there are 20,000 new believers every day. Weekly, there are new denominations starting that have nothing to do with Western tradition. At the current rate of growth in early 2000, to Africa, south of the Sahara, became a majority Christian continent for the first time in all of history. In South America, according to Louise Bush, there are 10,000 new Christians every day. And according to the Associated Press, 50,000 new churches are launched every year, about a 1,000 a week. If you add up all those statistics on a worldwide scale, there are on an average more than 3,000 people per hour coming to a knowledge of Christ from more nations than Pentecost ever saw.
1: We have a Pentecost in our Leith ended his speech by saying, I have a dream that one day I will be walking in heaven. Someone's going to come up and go, Hey, I heard that you were a preacher and that you were around when the Holy Spirit was doing his greatest move in all the history of the world. What was it like? He said, I want to tell him it was a dazzling honor. And I served the Lord in that. What were your responses? These men suffered martyrdom and launched the early church into every nation because 3,000 people came to the knowledge in one day. You have that in your own. What's your response? Matt, can you bring up the team? Everyone, my challenge to you is this. The Holy Spirit has come. Pentecost already happened.
0: The power is there. The possibility is there. The promise is there. What will you do
1: with what you have and the blessing that you can give? What part will you take in the greatest move of the Holy Spirit in all of history and so far? Your choice.